In the 17th century novel, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character called Christian, he makes his way from his hometown, which is basically the city of destruction, and he makes his way then to the celestial city of heaven. And as an allegorical story, John Bunyan designed all of the characters and their experience to really reflect the deeper truths found in the Christian life. And so as readers follow Christian on his journey, we see him experiencing the joys and challenges of following Jesus. And at one point in the story, Christian and his friend Hopeful get captured by giant despair, where despair imprisons them, beats them, starves them, and despair even wants Christian to commit suicide to end their struggle right there and then. But by God's grace, things take a turn for the better when Christian realizes that the way out involves using the key of promise. And using the key of promise, Christian escapes the castle of doubt, and they continue on the king's highway to the celestial city. Well, as we continue in our series, Living in Grace, Counseling the Word, we come to one of the most well-known God-given keys of promise, so to speak, that frees us from the prison of despair as we go through our own Christian journey, wrestling with sin, trials, temptations. Our passage this morning is once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Go ahead and turn to your Bibles there. If you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, it's found on page 957, 1 Corinthians 10, Verse 13 on page 957 in the Black Bibles in front of you. And this is what the verse reads. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This passage here is a divine promise that ought to be held very tightly to our own chests here, as it helps us look to God in every single step of the way in our Christian lives, especially as we're going to face various trials and temptations. From our passage today, we look at, number one, the faithfulness of God, and then number two, specifically in His protection and provision for His people. So number one, the faithfulness of God, and then number two, specifically, in his protection and provision of his people. And if you're joining us for the first time in this series, let me give you a a summary of at least what we looked at last week. The reason why Paul the Apostle wrote this section, that is chapter 10 there, verses 1 to uh, 13, and and really all the way down to the end of uh, verse 22... The reason why he wrote this at the, in the mid-50s AD was that the church was facing various temptations. And not only that, though, but they were giving in to them. And the, Christi- the Corinthian church certainly had their issues, just like any other church does, we do. Uh, while Christians are saved, you know, we still wrestle with sins and our desires to sin. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10 is warn the Christians to not desire evil like the Israelites did. So if you look there in chapter 10, verse 6, it says there, after citing, uh, referring to Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he gives four different examples of Israel's ongoing and willful disobedience in the face of God. 
God draws them out of Egypt, but yet they continually desire evil. This is willful. They're entering into their own desires to sin against God. And then they are judged. And these Israelites' examples were to check the hearts of, and desires of the Christians in the Corinthian church here. These things were written down as examples to us. Look there at verse 7. It says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it, was, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. This is the second thing. As some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. The third thing, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. This is number four, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then we come to the verse that we've been looking at last week and then this week. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He's basically saying, look, Christian, get back in the fight. And those who are not taking responsibility for their sin, which we know some of them were, they're basically saying, look, you don't know how hard it is for me and my profession, me and my family, or me and my society. And I had to sin. I had no other choice. And so he says, look, let him who... Let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Get back in the fight. And so these folks were making an excuse for their sin. They're not taking responsibility. So they're kind of pushed back into the normal experience of the Christian. Everything you experience, the temptations that you experience, and even when you fall, this is all common to man. But then at the same time, to those who feel the weight of their sin. And who perhaps might be inclined to despair because of it as they look at their own hearts and see all the darkness that in there, that's in there. This verse gently draws them back into the normal experience of the Christian. They already feel so outside of it, like they're despairing, still in the cages and the dungeons of despair. Here, Christ brings them back in. No temptation has ever overtaken you except that which is common to man. And so these Christians are encouraged to press on. Those who are making an excuse for their sin, they are rebuked to press on. Those who are despairing in their sin are encouraged to press on. But as I'm sure you know, pressing on is not an easy feat. I mean, just think about when you are, uh, when you are making an excuse for your own sin. Or if you feel so despairing. You know, for those who are tempted to make an excuse for your own sin. You know, there's a lot of legitimate pressures here as you seek to understand this, this type of person. There are a lot of legitimate pressures from culture, from family, from work. And we know there that in those situations, we constantly have to navigate all of those things. We have to, we have to figure out every single step of the way that honors Christ. And we know that if we stand for Christ, we might risk persecution, isolation, or shaming, or losing your job. And so to hear, no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man, you know, that can cause even more pressure. And so that might be some of your experiences now. You're thinking like, oh, okay, this is normal to Christian life. This is hard. I already thought it was beyond my wisdom. And now I have to get back into the situation with a new way forward? It's awkward because, you know, I've got to draw lines I've never drawn before. I've got to take responsibility where I've been avoiding it the whole time. And so, you know, frankly, there's a little bit even, there's more confusion. 
Regarding those who despair over their sins, you know, this first section of the verse, verse 13, when taken out of context can be discouraging as well. You know, if my situation and temptations are what is common to man, then everyone is living in their own hell. I've already tried so hard. Why wouldn't I just give up? So you see how this verse, taken out of context, not read in the rest of the context of 1 Corinthians 10, it brings about legitimate discouragement? Of course it does. Because all we have to fight against sin is our very own selves. The answer is, frankly, beyond our wisdom. Hope is beyond us. And that, friends, is a legitimate reason to be disheartened and distressed. How's that for hope on Sunday morning? It's a legitimate reason to take a defeatist and despondent mindset. How can you fight Satan and sin in the strength of your own sinful flesh? You cannot, and if you do, of course, we fail. It is, frankly, beyond our ability. But the wonderful thing, friends, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, is that Paul knows exactly that. He knows exactly that, which is why he says what he does. Right after he says, no temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man, he says there, God is faithful. This brings us to our first point, the faithfulness of God. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? You know, it's no temptation has overtaken you. So, right, except what's common to man, we can feel the pressure. But then he says, God is faithful, friends. So here we see that this is freeing because the ability to withstand and endure outer trials and inner temptations depends not finally on your ability, but on God's. So verse 13, actually, is a huge dose of hope and it's frankly a bit surprising if you're so used to trusting in your very own self. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And literally in the Greek it says, faithful is God to protect and provide. It is undeniable that what undergirds your perseverance in the faith is God's preservation of you. It is God's very own faithfulness. This is why Paul directs us to God's covenant faithfulness to his people. It is to those whom he pledges himself to that he remains faithful. And you can think of Israel in the Old Testament. So many times Israel strayed away from God. And the question is, you know, did he abandon them? No, he remains committed to them and he delivers them. He, he remains committed to purifying them. And then even delivering them finally and bringing them to final salvation. And in the written pages of the Old Testament is not, certainly not, a story of Israel's faithfulness. But of the faithfulness of God. And so God promises to make Abraham a people. You remember that? Genesis chapter 12. And even though Abraham and Sarah jeopardized the promise, God yet remains faithful. Such that at the beginning of Exodus chapter 1 it says that the people of Abraham multiplied and grew exceedingly strong in the, and the land of Egypt was filled with them. God makes a promise, his people jeopardize the promise, and God comes to the rescue there. Genesis 15, we learn that God said Abraham's people would go into exile under Egypt and be, quote, sojourners in a land that is not theirs and be servants there. But in the fourth generation, they will come out with great possessions. And so just as God is faithful, in Exodus 12, it says there, at the end of 430 years, 
on that very day. You see there, God's faithfulness, he's planned out everything. He knows that they're going to go into exile. He knows that they're going to be servants under Egypt. But yet on that very day that he had planned, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And then you have God's covenant faithfulness most clearly seen in giving Jesus Christ to die on the cross for sins. So you can think of the prophecy that he gave Isaiah 700 years before Jesus Christ came. God declared through Isaiah, quote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know too that just as Christ had knew exactly what he was doing, just as he counted out all the centuries and all the years and every single day, scripture says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, Galatians 4.4. 4. So like a husband determined to love his wife, even when she doesn't know how to love, and even though she is unfaithful, unfaithful to the covenant, God remains committed to his own promises, committed to fulfilling his very own vows. And so if you look through the pages of Scripture, you just see God's covenant faithfulness everywhere. And so you can take, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Chapter seven. We're going to look more at uh, Israel and Deuteronomy, but for now, we look at this one verse here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at verse 9. It speaks about God's faithfulness here. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Well, okay, so, so what does Moses, what does God himself want to teach Israel about his own person, his character? He says right there, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands. Right, and they're right, they're going to go into the land of uh, the land of milk and honey here. And, and he wants them to know so clearly that God is the faithful God. And you see how his faithfulness is attached to his covenant and his steadfast love. Uh, you can turn over to the book of Psalms. Look at chapter 91, Psalm 91. Beautiful picture here of God as, uh, you know, like a mother hen who's protecting all of his little chicks in their despair and in danger. You'll actually look at 91 verse 3. It says there, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. So they're being threatened. Verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, that is his, uh, the outermost edge of his wing there. And then it says, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Now why is that? It's because God, the mother hand, is protecting his people there. And he does so in his own covenant faithfulness. You know, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, God's love to sinners in Christ is the love, the covenant love, the faithful love that we as Christians marvel at again and again and again. We were the ones who turned on Christ, having rejected him in sin. We were the ones, you know, from Genesis chapter 3 we read there, we were the ones who rebelled against God. Yet... He pursues. Now contrast that to you. Just even maybe in this last week. Maybe in this last weekend. 
What do you do when people simply don't notice that you are loving them? Don't you get a little bitter? You know, you, you throw a little hissy fit with a big harumph thing like these people don't recognize that I love them and all the things that we do for them. I mean, in that, you, you recognize there that the bitterness comes up. Or maybe you just want to cut people out of their lives. You know, you stop pursuing them. And that's just when people simply don't realize that we love them so desperately. Now imagine if they take your love and they just throw it right back in your face. They just don't give a rip about your love. You, they spurn your love and hate your actions. Isn't it amazing, friends, where we know our very own unfaithfulness? We see Christ's faithfulness. He is the God who pursues lost sinners, remaining faithful to his own steadfast love, his own kindness, his own grace, and his own mercy. So God's promise that he would send one to crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. To sinners who couldn't help themselves, yet he sends Jesus Christ. God's promise to make Abraham's offspring a blessing to the nations, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth in Genesis chapter 22, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God's promise to send a righteous king to administer justice and righteousness, because we know we certainly can't do it ourselves. Those promises given in 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah chapter 9, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ the King. God's promise to bring renewal to his people, where we could not renew ourselves, given in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where God promises to give us new hearts and spirits. This is too, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as Christ puts his very own spirit inside of us to renew ourselves, making us new creations as we've already covered. And all of this, once again, is not according to your faithfulness, or because you deserved it. No, our story is just like Israel's. We don't deserve it, but because God is faithful, he does these things. That's why Paul encourages the Corinthian church, right? These people are partaking in idolatry. They're going up to the feasts uh, of the pagans, and they're joining with them. And they're participating in sin in that sense, even though they're free to eat any sort of food. I mean, you know, food is food. That's what Corinthians says. All of it has been made of God, and you're not technically in sin, no matter what you eat. But if they go up to the temple and they're eating the food of, uh, that the pagans are giving in celebration to the idols, then they are in sin. And yet God tells them, or Paul tells them, God is faithful, friends. Pursue holiness. And just as God is faithful to save, so he is faithful to sanctify. So if you're new to Christian, Christianity, sanctification is the process whereby God makes us holy. I mean, that's a really simple definition. But from the Bible, we see that once we become Christians, God sets about this great work through the Spirit and through His own means, and He calls us to use His determined means to sanctify us or to purify us. But friends, did you know that part of the means that God uses to make you holy if you're a Christian are trials that you experience? So turn over to James chapter 1. And if you're sitting next to somebody who looks like they are not familiar with the Bible, just feel free and help them get to James chapter 1. And look at verses 2 to 4. It says there, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And there he's talking about outer, outer circumstances there. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there clearly, these trials are working in such a way to produce steadfastness. It has its end goal of making us complete or perfect, or faith is going to produce its end. And what's really unique, though, is that by the end of the chapter, it talks about, there, there in verses 16 and 17, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's saying there in verse 17 that even the very experiences that we go through are from our good Father in heaven above. So these trials here, they work in such a way to make us more Christ-like. So friends, if you're going through a trial or something, do you realize that the, the very trials that you experience are examples of God's faithfulness to you? It's so strange, you know, oftentimes we think of the very trials that we're going through as evidence that God is unfaithful to us. But yet, according to the Bible, it's examples of his faithfulness. He faithfully and personally is going about the task of making us more Christ-like. Now, some of you guys who might be new to Christianity, you, you might think, gosh, you know, the idea that God uses difficult circumstances uh, to make us more pure sounds like he's more of a God of hunger games or a God of, like, uh, the, of the maze runner or something like this. God, the impersonal God, just wants us to make us tougher or stronger. You know, who frankly would want to follow a God like that? I've actually had the same objection. But my objection sprang from a whole bunch of different misunderstandings. Misunderstanding about the fact that God is, in fact, a personal God. Not only that, though, but I've misunderstood God's goals for my life. So I failed to see God's purposes in sanctification in connection with laying hold of the God of my salvation. You separate those things and you're done for right there. Then, yeah, you are basically following a God of the maze runner. But no, here, God's purposes in sanctification is in direct connection with laying hold of the God of your salvation. And, and one fuels the other. If you are going through some, some trial in sanctification, the purpose is that you would lay hold of the God of your great salvation. Sanctification serves the goal of helping us grasp more tightly to our good and faithful servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if we want to understand how and why God tests us, we are helped to go back to Deuteronomy. So go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we see how God tested Moses and the Israelites and the previous generation of Israelites as they wandered through the desert there. Here in this book, Moses comments on some of the very things that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Remember, Israel in the desert, the desert wanderings. Here, Moses is commenting on their persistent rebellion, their willful disobedience. And the book of Deuteronomy is really just a bunch of sermons as Israel is right on the cusp of going into the promised land. And here, Moses reflects on their parents' generation and how they went through and wandered in the desert. And they recount what God had done for them. Look there in eight chap, uh, sorry, chapter 8, verse 2. It says there, And you, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. 
Look at the purpose there. He says, that he might humble you. So what has happened? Well, they wandered in the desert, and many of them fell because of their willful disobedience. Well, why is it that they had to do that? It says, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see what he was doing to Israel? Because what he does to Israel, he basically does to us. He's testing them to know what was in their heart. And so when he tests us, he tests us in order that we, we might know what is in our heart. Here, he, he aims at the desires of the heart. Remember in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, to see if they would uh, desire evil or not. And here, he's helping to see if they would keep his commandments. But again, some of you are tempted to read this as if God just wants to see if you will obey or not. But in the Bible, any obedience to God is to spring from a love of God. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So when God's testing of his people, God doesn't just test to see whether or not they're going to keep his commandments or not. But the testing implies a living relationship with our great God. And so when he tests us to see if we're going to keep his commands or not, he really tests us to see whether or not we're going to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy, it presumes that we know what happened in the Exodus. How God, according to keeping his steadfast love and his covenant, he goes and delivers his people. He hears their cry. He sees what goes on. He knows. And so he enters into their situation. And so it's that God, the personal God, that tests us and sifts us. So as God tests, you realize, friends, that he's drawing out what already is in our heart? That's what goes on there. John Owen says that in, in testing, God doesn't put stuff into our hearts. No, he draws out in our hearts what was already there before. He already knows what's there. But he tests us so we would see what is in our heart and then find solution in him. That's how God uses trials oftentimes to help us see what is in our very own hearts, to help us see all the false gods that we rely on. And God does this in order that we might find our true satisfaction in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, this might be happening to you right now. And you've got to admit that if you were like me, we exacerbate the problem, don't we? Because we're too busy trying to change our circumstances instead of addressing the more systemic problem of our wandering and idolatrous hearts. And sometimes we're so stiff-necked and slow to learn, aren't we? I mean, many of you guys know, just to give you a personal example, many of you guys know that before I started dating Melanie, I was in basically 10 years of, of straight-up overcommitted, immature, sinful relationships. Starting from 14 years old. In these, in this like serial dating relationships from 14 years old all the way to 24, 25. And what was so appealing about these relationships was this dream and this idea of having a perfect family life. And you know, in these relationships, I found my identity in them and determined my own worth from them. And so God, he was so kind to show me, uh, to eventually break us up. In all, of these, in all of these relationships, God would break us up. And, uh, but unfortunately, my heart was not on the radar. My heart was really on just changing the certain circumstance because I had this idol right in front of me that I would stop at nothing to go ahead and get. I thought the solution to my own despair was uh, to just jump right into another relationship. 
Find another person who's going to give me what I wanted, my idols, this perfect family life, my own uh, self-identification in this relationship, my worth, my identity. And then when the next long-term relationship would end, I'd just hop into another one. And then when that one would end, I would just hop into another one. But by God's grace, I came to be so fed up having stared at my failures again and again and again. Being let down again and again and again. I came to see by God's grace that the only relationship that could satisfy me, the only relationship that was designed for me to find my ultimate hope and relationship with, the only perfect relationship there could be, is the one that is initiated by God's sovereign grace in Christ who establishes his covenant love towards me, a sinner. But I was so stiff-necked, so hard-hearted, so resistant to learning the lesson, but so determined to change my own situation. It took 10 years of hard-headedness to finally get it. And at that point, I just threw myself at Christ, saying, I'm willing to abandon everything. Lord Jesus, you help me with this. Friends, you don't need 10 years of failed relationships to see how God is drawing out the sin that is in your own heart. In order that we might confront it and submit that whole area of our life to the Lord. I mean, think about it in the trials of your own lives. Your own frustration, given your inability to get the job you want, after having meticulously planned for it and strategized to get it. I mean, could God be telling you that your worth is not in what you do, but in the fact that you were made to be a worshiper of Christ? Think about the despair you feel, given your own failed relationships. Could God be telling you that the only relationship that you can bank on is the one that your creator desires to establish with you? Who, him who truly knows you, who designed you to live for his glory. Think about the despair over the dark desires that you frankly can't get rid of. The ones you think about and long for, frankly, all the time. I mean, could God be telling you that your solution is not found inside of you? but outside of you in Christ who came into the world to save sinners? Think about the insecurity you feel because of the apartment you can't afford, the house you can't get, the wheels you can't keep. I mean, could God be telling you not to store up treasures here in the world, on the earth, but instead store up treasures in heaven where Christ is? Friends, you see how in, in these trials God brings our way and the temptations that come from your own heart, the ones that we give in to, You see how God is drawing out the idolatries in your own heart and how he provides us opportunities to see them for what they are. And then by God's grace, put them to death, repenting of our sin and then running to Christ for forgiveness, for security that you can't get anywhere else. Satisfaction that no drug can give you. Joy that no earthly family can give you. And peace that no situation can provide and hope. That no thought here that that stays here on the earth can grant you. This process is God really weaning us from the world and then to him. Weaning us from everything that leads to death. You see how kind it is of God to draw out the idolatries in our heart, showing us, do you not see how this leads you to death? This is God and his faithfulness weaning us from everything that he knows will in fact fail you. And he teaches us to be captivated with him who never will. Weaning us from the world and to him. Praise God for trials then. If that is in fact what he's doing. 
helping us see that the things that we rely on, the crutches that we rely on, shouldn't be relied on, but in fact they will fail us. But God never does. Thank God for trials because in that situation we can count it all joy when we face, as James says, trials of various kinds. Not because of the attitude, whatever doesn't kill me is going to make me stronger. But because our God and faithful Father in heaven is right here with us. Helping me see the glories of Jesus Christ in the gospel. The gospel that alone saves and delivers. So non-Christians, some of you may come here this morning recognizing that this world is not all you thought it would be. Perhaps the relationship with your very own mother, you know, today's Mother's Day, perhaps the relationship with your very own mother, the relationship with your father, the relationship with your children, that's what you bank on, but yet you see their unfaithfulness, and if you know yourself well enough, you see your own unfaithfulness, your inability. Friends, you realize that that is God, in His own faithfulness, calling you to not hope in the world or in yourself, but in God alone. The wonderful thing, friends, is that you can always trust in God's faithfulness who sends Christ to die on the cross for your sins and your inability and your rebellion. He bears all of the wrath that you deserved on the cross. Freeness of salvation to those who don't deserve it. That's God's faithfulness. And then three days later, he raises Christ from the dead, showing that all payment has been made. Freedom for all who repent of their sins and trust in him. You know, in relation to your own faith, unfaithfulness, I'm guessing that you already know. I'm guessing you already know that your circumstances scream to you, that you cannot hope in yourself, that you cannot cope with your situations and your sins. You can't repress, you cannot move on. And your anxiety shows you that. But friends, hope is found in Jesus. Repent of your sins and believe on him. And you, friend, will be saved. He pledges covenant faithfulness. That never fails, steadfast love to deliver you all the way until the end, if you would turn to him. God is, in fact, our personal and faithful God, certainly faithful to save and certainly faithful to sanctify, even using trials to get there. He is determined and he is deliberate, but, friends, he is also loving and compassionate. And I think all of these characteristics come to bear in our point number two. It's God's faithfulness in. The protection and provision of God. This is point number two. The protection and provision of God. It says there, our verse, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, He will provide a way of escape. We could easily break this point into two separate points. So, you know, something like the protection of God and then the next point, the provision of God. But focusing too particularly on each of those sections as if they were not attached to each other can lead to all sorts of speculation regarding what it means for God to not let us be tempted beyond our ability. I mean, if you guys ever wonder what that's like, if you rip it out of context, you're just looking at that, God will never let you be tempted beyond your ability. Some people look at that and they think, oh, that certainly means that it's possible that I might never sin, that I might be above conscious sin or something like that. But this does not match up with the Bible's teaching. The Bible gives us plenty of reason to think that we will continue to fall into sin, and that we'll need to continually confess our sins and repent of them, as 1 John 1.9 says. To rightly understand it, we need to keep these propositions together. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, needs to be read with, but he will make, but, sorry, he will make with the temptation, the way out. Or to put it more literally, it says, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, 
But with temptation, he will provide the way out that you may be able to endure it. So you hear the repetition of ability or able. Ability and provide in the ESV have the same root word there. The emphasis is on having the ability to endure trials given God's provision of a way of escape. That's the emphasis of those propositions here. The emphasis is on on having the ability to endure trials given God's provision of a way of escape. He's basically saying, look, God uh, doesn't, or if God doesn't give you a way out, of course you're not going to be able to endure. If there is no way out, you will not be able to endure. You're done for. And perhaps the Corinthian Christians thought God was like this great impersonal maze builder who simply threw the rats in the maze, just seeing what's going to happen, as if you know he gets his jollies off of doing this. He doesn't give them a way out, but he just wants to see what they're going to do. What a cruel joke the Christian life would be. But praise God, he is not like that. We've seen that God is faithful, and he doesn't build us a maze in order to throw us into it like the lab rats. If anyone, right, if anybody turned the beautiful path into a treacherous maze, it is on us. It is on on account of our own sin. And according to the Bible, God is the one who sends Christ into the mess that we made in order to lead us out of it. Sure, God uses our circumstances. He does indeed let us be tempted. But as the passage says, he always gives us a way out. There is protection. There is provision. Remember, right? He's weaning us from the world and to him. In these sections, it is as if God is, uh, Paul is saying, God is faithful. Friends, in your trials and temptations, don't despair. You, you need not despair, thinking there is no way out. God is faithful. Just as he brings trials, so he also provides a way out. So to those who despair and say, I had to sin. You don't understand the pressures I'm under in my career, my home, my head, my choice, my, my situation. I had no choice. Or to those who despair, thinking that they've been abandoned by God, this passage encourages both sides to see the door of escape in Christ. To see the door of escape in Jesus Christ. No one ought ever feel trapped as if there is no way out because with the trials that God brings, God always provides a way out that you may be able to endure it. I find great comfort in this passage, and we all should, as this is one of the keys of promise. Because once again, the passage's emphasis is on God's faithfulness despite our lack of faithfulness. God's strength in our own weaknesses. I mean, in our own capacities. We are done for. If we face our trials and temptations on our own, it is, frankly, game over. There is no way out apart from God's divine grace. But with God's capacities of steadfast love and faithfulness, it is as if God... Is like a father teaching his daughter to dance the dance of living in God's grace. So just picture a father who knows his daughter is struggling. And yet he comes alongside of her and desires to teach her the dance of living in grace. That's what he teaches her there. And, and he's there to help her patiently and joyfully endure the difficulties of living life in a sinful world. He comes along there. God, the good father, knows that we come to the dance not knowing what to do. And so in his kindness, he calls us to just simply follow his lead. God knows, too, that we are going to trip up and we are going to fall at times. But with his strength there, we are lifted up. God knows, too, that we as his children, you know, we we not only stumble, but we get discouraged. 
And that's why he speaks his words of promise into our ears, saying that, in fact, it will be okay. Because I am faithful. And I have you in my hand. But what we as children can know for sure is that our faithful father has us by the hands. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. Even when we trip up and fall, he is still with us, protecting and providing. And he, in fact, friends, will promises to never let anything rip you out of his hands. And all he calls you to do is to trust him and his faithfulness. As 2 Peter 2.9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Thank God that in, dark, in the dark valley, or in the darkest valley, it can never be too dark to prevent Christ the great shepherd from seeing and knowing the way out. Next week, we look more practically about looking for the way out. But friends, every way out, you realize, every way out involves finding our rest in Christ, His person, His work, His commands, His people. So if you're desperately saying, okay, where is this way out? What is the way out of my circumstance? Friends, turn back to what Paul wants us to turn back to. It is the very faithful God that saved us in the first place. Every way out involves finding our rest in Christ, His person, His work, His commands, and His people. It is the faithfulness of God through Christ that is our way out. Christ Jesus is God's testament of steadfast love and faithfulness. This is why Christ calls us, no matter the difficulty or trial or temptation, to take once again. Friend, if you feel discouraged and in the jail of despair, He calls you once again to take His own nail-pierced hands. And being again in awe of what Christ has done for us. And to give ourselves to him with trust and a joyful thanksgiving. Knowing that he has bled for you. And delivered you from all of your sins and his very own judgment. Last week or last Sunday night Oscar preached a sermon about Christ's righteousness from Isaiah 53.5. I was so encouraged by that as it spoke about how Christ is faithful every second. His righteousness, right, is faithful every second, every hour, every day, every month, every year. God is faithful to deliver, faithful to live in his righteousness. And we know certainly, too, as this is applied to his faithfulness, he is faithful in his faithfulness. Every second, every hour, every day, every year, every decade, every generation, so long as he preserves this world by the power of his word. Friends, you see how faithful God is to you? And so he calls you to throw yourself on his faithfulness when we are not. He alone is faithful to fulfill his promises and that we can bank on. The key of promise held out to us today is that God is faithful to protect and provide. Even as God, even as God uses trials to draw out what is already in our hearts in order that we might more wholly submit our hearts to Jesus Christ. Even as he does that, he is faithful. Faithful in helping us see the glories of Christ our Savior. Friends, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You that You are our faithful Father. We confess, Lord, that as we look at our own hearts, that there is not one 
minute that goes by where our desires show themselves for what it is. Even though we have been born again, for those of us who are Christians, even though we've been born again, Lord, you know certainly that we desire some very bad things. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you say that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so you call us to confess them. We thank you so much, Lord, that just as Roger read for us earlier from the book of Psalms, Lord, we know there that there David, as our example, is able to confess his sin. He recognizes that before him, he says, evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and we cannot see. They are more than the hairs of our head and our hearts fail us. Where do we go in this despair? Where do we go in our sinfulness? Lord, we thank you that just as David is able to confess these things, so he is able to point us to your grace. As it says there, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So Lord, we pray and we plead that you would show yourself faithful again. For any of us here who might be despairing in recognition of our own sin and conviction of our own sin, for those of us who feel like there is no way out in recognition that there is difficult circumstances before us, and we have a temptation towards not taking responsibility of our sin, but Lord, we pray that you would show yourself faithful. We thank you for this passage that points us to you and your faithfulness given to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that through your wounds you protect us. Through your shed blood, you preserve us and you give us a way out by turning to you and seeing your face. In your name we pray. Amen.